Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you to everyone for joining us today for our first in our Fight Against Human Trafficking series on state-sponsored forced labor and how to fight it. I'm Olivia Enos, a senior policy analyst in the Asian Studies Center here at Heritage, and I'm excited to mark this National Slavery and Anti-Trafficking Awareness Month by kicking us off with this event. It was my junior year in college when I first learned about political prison camps in North Korea. I truly thought that these modern day gulags, as well as the re-education through forced labor practices that are used inside of those camps, I thought they were relegated to the history books. I was wrong. It was 2018 that the world first started hearing reports about political uh, re-education camps inside of Xinjiang, China, where today between 1.8 and 3 million Uyghurs are held in detention. Now we know that forced labor is taking place. People who are inside of those camps have been sent after their time in those camps and been forced to labor through forced labor transfer programs. And some factories even share facilities with those political camps. I thought that this was relegated to the history books and yet again, I was wrong. It was high school when I first learned about human trafficking, when I heard that individuals actually exploited other people both for sex, for labor, and for profit. And my conscience was shocked, as I'm sure many of our audience members were too when they first learned about the terrors and the horrors of human trafficking. I thought that all of these practices, again, were relegated to the history books, and I was wrong. But when I heard that governments themselves, yes, governments themselves, actually engage in human trafficking, subjecting people to forced labor and other forms of exploitation, my conscience was shocked even further. The people that we have assembled here today um, have devoted their lives to defending the voiceless. They've been a voice for the voiceless and they bring some of their own experiences as well as their research and their analysis to bear in what I hope will be a program that both helps to bring about greater awareness about state-sponsored human trafficking, but also helps us to think through next steps and solutions to remedy these serious challenges. So I'm very delighted to have with us today Ambassador at Large for Trafficking in Persons, John Richmond, who's gonna join me up here. He serves as the United States Ambassador at Large to monitor and combat trafficking in persons, and he leads the department's office to monitor and combat trafficking in persons. Ambassador Richmond has an incredibly illustrious career. He comes to the highest position in the federal government dedicated to combating human trafficking after a distinguished career in the global battle for freedom. He co-founded the Human Trafficking Institute that exists to decimate modern slavery at its source by empowering police and prosecutors to use the victim-centered and trauma-informed methods to hold traffickers accountable and ensure survivors are treated with respect and care. Prior to the Institute, Ambassador Richmond served for more than 10 years as a federal prosecutor at the U.S. Department of Justice's Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit, where he was named one of the federal prosecutors of the year by the Federal Law Enforcement Foundation. 
Ambassador Richmond regularly served as an expert to the United Nations Working Group on Trafficking in Persons, as well as living in India for three years, pioneering international justice missions anti-slavery work. Ambassador Richmond earned his bachelor's degree from the University of Mary Washington and his Juris Doctor from Wake Forest University School of Law. Ambassador Richmond, thank you so much for joining us and also for agreeing to take Q&A. So for our audience members, please be sure to turn your attention to the Q&A box and submit some of those questions so Ambassador Richmond can be responsive to your interests um, throughout our program. So without further ado, Ambassador Richmond, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you and good morning. Uh, welcome to everyone who is joining. I am grateful to be included today in this important discussion about human trafficking. I'm even more grateful for Olivia and the organizers at the Heritage Foundation for narrowing today's topic from broad issues about modern slavery to focus on state-sanctioned forced labor. Governments engaged in trafficking people is a significant concern for businesses, for consumers, for academics, and for policymakers. Um, it is a far graver concern for the victims. Uh, millions of people don't get to decide where they work and often do not see the fruits of their labor. Traffickers deny their agency and their autonomy. And when most of us think about traffickers, we conjure up images of criminals. Perhaps we think of cartoonish scoundrels in trench coats lurking in the shadows, or creepy guys in white panel vans offering candy to bait kids. These images are helpful or unhelpful caricatures. Many traffickers actually know their victims and many times their family members. Yet most of our conversations, conferences, and trainings on the issue of human trafficking focus on traffickers who are criminals, whether they are individuals, gangs, companies. Criminal traffickers operate outside the law. State-sanctioned forced labor is different. Instead of traffickers illegally violating criminal law, some governments traffic people using the law itself as a means of coercion. When the government acts as the trafficker, victims often have nowhere to turn and civil society organizations are not allowed to operate or assist or are ineffective if they try to act. The International Labor Organization estimated that governments force 4.1 million people to work in 2016. For some perspective, that's about the size of the population of Croatia or the state of Oregon in the USA. I think the actual number is much larger, but due to a lack of transparency, it's very difficult to estimate the true scale of this type of human trafficking. You know, it shouldn't surprise us that governments do this. Throughout history, we've seen many examples of human trafficking, including slavery, at the hands of governments. From ancient armies uh, conscripting defeated foes, hereditary monarchs forcing people to work, or communist collectivization farming. Uh, the sovereign or the seat of legal power exploiting people has been a practice throughout history. Presently, we see this manifest globally in similar ways, from forced labor in local or national work projects, military operations that are economically important to many sectors, or government-funded projects or missions abroad. Officials use power to exploit other individuals. To extract this work, governments coerce by threatening to withdraw public benefits. They withhold salaries. They set limit, they fail to set limits on national service. 
They manipulate legal status of stateless individuals and other minority groups. They threaten to punish family members or condition services or freedom of movement on labor or sex. Congress recently raised concerns about state-sanctioned forced labor when it reauthorized the Trafficking Victims Protection Act in 2019. They added a requirement to the statute to rank any government that had a policy or pattern of trafficking on the lowest tier of the State Department's Trafficking in Persons Report. A policy or pattern of trafficking includes trafficking in government-funded programs, forced labor in government-affiliated medical services, agriculture, or other sectors, sexual slavery in government camps, or employing or recruiting child soldiers is also included in the definition. The State Department first applied this new tool to discourage governments from trafficking people in the 2020 TIP report. The Secretary of State found that 10 countries had a policy or pattern of trafficking. Some of those listings may be obvious. For instance, concerns about China forcing people to work in re-education camps and its Belt and Road Initiative around the world have been well documented. Likewise, North Korea forcing its citizens to work in countries around the world or Cuba coercing and trafficking workers in its foreign medical missions continues to make headlines. The other seven countries that earned the designation of having a policy or pattern of trafficking include Afghanistan, Belarus, Burma, Eritrea, Russia, South Sudan, and Turkmenistan. State-sanctioned forced labor requires a different set of interventions. And when we think about criminal traffickers, our focus is on government enforcing its laws. We talk about increasing investigations, prosecutions, and convictions. We call on governments to protect people in a victim-centered and trauma-informed way. Yet when the government itself is acting as the trafficker, these interventions are not effective. Instead, we must pivot to other interventions. And we have a broad array of options. Diplomatic efforts to raise the issue uh, and encourage the government to stop forcing people to work can be effective. There are many multilateral forums that can be mobilized. Sanctions and tethering trade to human rights concerns should also be considered. Reporting that shines a light on abuses can also generate public pressure for reform. International organizations, media, think tanks, and the State Department's TIP report are good examples of these efforts. With a renewed focus on the long-standing problem of state-sanctioned forced labor, I believe we can make a difference. It will require long-term consistent pressure in the same direction. And as we increase the cost on these governments for its culpability and complicity in human trafficking, both political and economic costs, we increase the likelihood of ending this crime. And our hope is that one day, the inherent value of every individual will be recognized and protected by all governments around the world. I'm looking forward to the candid discussion today about this issue and learning more about the practical steps we can take to make a difference. Thank you for letting me join, and I'm glad to be with you. Thank you, Ambassador Richmond, for that really comprehensive coverage of state-sponsored human trafficking. I think it's, you know, one of those aspects of human trafficking that is often under-focused on. And so it was so exciting to see um, governments that were now being listed 
for engaging in that state-sponsored practice. I'm gonna take moderator's prerogative and ask the first question, and then I promise we'll turn to audience questions. But um, with that new state-sponsored designation for those 10 countries, are there any direct consequences that come as a result of that or any thought of increasing some of those consequences um, you know, as you talked through the range of options that the US government has in order to really um, increase pressure on governments to not engage in that behavior? You know, one of the first consequences to recognize is that being listed as having a policy or pattern of trafficking for a government creates an immediate listing on tier three in the TIP report. And for folks not familiar, the TIP report ranks countries tier one, tier two, tier two watch list, and tier three. Three being the lowest tier comes with a set of sanctions already. So they lose all non-humanitarian foreign assistance, um, and there are several co consequences when it comes to international financial institutions. Um, so we have an immediate tier three restriction that comes. There are other, other consequences as well. Um, there's the notoriety and sort of public discussion that comes from being listed, like the discussion we're having right now um, during, during this event. It also generates scholarship um, and uh, a broad uh, analysis of what is going on in these countries uh, that qualifies it as having a pattern or a policy regarding trafficking. We can look at other consequences as well in multilateral engagements as we think about our work with the U United Nations, specifically the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. Um, we think about how to engage through other multilateral fora. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. There's also the possibility that it could trigger Global Magnitsky Act sanctions as we think about human rights uh, abuses. And of course, in 2019, in addition to creating uh, the state sanctioned forced labor emphasis, Congress also created a new sanctions authority regarding human trafficking. And as that gets up and running in the next uh, in the next few years, I think that could be another powerful tool. That's really great. We have a really good question that I'm going to paraphrase from audience member Michael Lundy. The question is, um, you know, human trafficking is a pretty bipartisan priority. Do you anticipate that the Biden administration will take up the mantle? And what do you think might be the future of trafficking uh, policy under the next administration? Mm. You know, I, I think that um, that you're absolutely right. This has been a bipartisan issue. I, I say that I think that human trafficking occupies some very rare political real estate in Washington, D.C. We've got champions for this issue on both sides of the aisle, and we've worked really hard to maintain our bipartisan consensus. In fact, yesterday we hosted a conversation with uh, my three predecessors, uh, the three prior uh, trafficking and persons ambassadors who were appointed by various administrations, two by Obama, one by Bush, and then myself. I'm talking about um, how we've had continuity in this space, how we saw that when President Clinton signed this law, there was concern that whether President Bush would make it a priority, and he did. And then there was concern when we transitioned to the Obama administration, if President Obama would see this as Bush's priority and not take it up. But no, President Obama also made it a priority. And the same concern happened in 2016. And indeed, President Trump has made this a priority as well. Um, I, by definition, can't speak for the Biden administration. Um, and what it's going to prioritize. But it is my sincere hope that there will continue to be continuity in this space. And myself, as well as my three predecessors, have all committed ourselves to make sure that we can support and cheer on the next Trafficking in Persons Ambassador and hopefully enable the Biden administration to continue to make this a priority. 
That's great. Okay, one last question. This comes from Cheryl Bassett. Um, she says, good morning and thanks for hosting this event to Ambassador Richmond for his participation. What has been the reaction of the 10 countries that were listed as state sponsors of forced labor? Have they been threatened to take or actually take any negative actions against the United States? Hey, Cheryl, thanks for asking your question. It's good to hear from you. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. I think most of the countries that were listed, the 10 countries that we have that I mentioned, all saw it coming. They, they know exactly what they're doing. Uh, this came as no surprise to them. And speaking the truth in print, um, also came as no surprise. We messaged it to them well ahead of time that this was the new rule and that we would be taking this up. The reality is even before this, we've been engaging these countries on these troubling practices for a long time. Um, you know, I have not heard of any adverse consequence that has come in terms of retaliation or anything like that to the United States. But I will say that the consistent pressure is, I think, can make a difference. Um, you know, just yesterday, we saw a withhold release order issued for the entire region of Xinjiang regarding cotton and tomatoes. So for a long time, we've been doing withhold release orders as preventing goods made with forced labor from coming into the United States. Um, we've been doing it by one ship at a time or one company at a time. Um, but now seeing Customs and Border Protection issue a regional WRO for all tomatoes, all cotton products coming out of Xinjiang because of the forced labor of Uyghurs, uh, is a tremendous step. And I think that part of listing them in the tip report for having a policy and pattern uh, applies pressure and gives support to further enforcement actions like the WROs. And so my hope is that we'll continue to make, um, we'll continue to make state sanctioned forced labor a priority, that we'll continue to engage the countries on it until we can make sure that everyone is free. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Ambassador Richmond, for joining us here this morning, for taking questions from the audience. Um, we so appreciate the attention that you've given to this issue and how you've raised the profile of the issue under this administration. And I know this event was a long time coming, so I'm so glad that we are finally able virtually to welcome you to the heritage stage. But thank you again for, for everything. Uh, we really appreciate your comments and remarks and your hard work. Thank you, Olivia. Awesome. I'd like to now invite Adrian Zenz, our first panelist, to join me up on the screen. Um, Adrian is the Senior Fellow in China Studies at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation in Washington, D.C. His research focuses on China's ethnic policy, public recruitment in Tibet and Xinjiang, Beijing's internment campaign in Xinjiang, and China's domestic security budgets. His work has been incredibly influential in the policy debates here in Washington, and so I'm truly delighted to have him open up our panel. So thank you, Adrian, for joining us. Well, thank you indeed, Olivia, for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure to uh, speak and present as part of this panel, and I've been asked to speak about uh, recent insights into forced labor. It's important to note that uh, the forced labor situation, particularly in Xinjiang, has two very distinct components. The one is forced labor related to the vocational internment camps uh, with uh, camp detainees being sort of released into forced labor, uh, which could, you know, there was a BuzzFeed investigation about uh, a lot of factories that uh, have been built on the grounds of internment camps. But there is a second forced labor system, which is related to labor transfer. Labor transfer pertains to the transferring of rural surplus laborers um, from 
agriculture where they're not needed because there's too many people trying to live on agriculture into the secondary or tertiary sector, the service industry or more prominently the manufacturing industry. Um, in the early 2000s, there were the first um, inception of labor transfer, particularly targeting ethnic minorities because they are mostly agricultural in both Xinjiang and Tibet. It was, of course, state uh, mandated already at the time. But <clears throat> what we really saw was a massive expansion, not only of the, the scale of the labor transfers, but uh, particularly of the coercive nature, starting with uh, Xi Jinping's uh, visit to Xinjiang in 2014, his declaration of the war on terror, and the onset of a much more intrusive uh, approach to poverty alleviation. Xi Jinping uh, coined the term precise or precision or fine-grained poverty alleviation, uh, where the state creates digital databases where every citizen who is to be alleviated from poverty um, is uh, put into a database and they get sort of a targeted um, approach that they have to follow to alleviate them from poverty. The main method to alleviate households from poverty is through labor transfer because it leads to increased incomes. So in 2014, we saw a talking of an increasing promotion of labor transfers of the establishment of digital databases for poverty alleviation. Uh, in 2015, Xinjiang set, started to set specific target goals for labor transfer. Uh, in 2016, we also saw that uh, particularly the, some regions in the Tibet Autonomous Region uh, were systematically uh, one region started in 2012, actually, to set up a, a sort of a more coercive military-style, militarized um, vocational training with labor transfer, the Chamdo region in, in Tibet. And um, in 2016, this was expanded. And uh, in 2000, late 2016, 2017, of course, you had Chen Xuanguo become party secretary of Xinjiang, who was previously party secretary of Tibet. The connection is very important because Chen Xuanguo set up very intrusive social control mechanisms, firstly in Tibet starting in 2011, and then in Xinjiang when he was brought on in the second half of 2016. These highly intrusive social control mechanisms where the state uh, plants down its roots of surveillance and intrusion and visiting uh, officials visiting uh, homes, home visits, uh, that, that really forms the backbone of coercive labor transfer. Coercive labor transfers means government officials design plans for every person, visit homes, and, and recruit coercive sort of mandatory recruitment into a labor transfer uh, by demand and by the situation. Uh, this can follow a so-called order-oriented approach whereby companies can put in an order for so we need so many um, laborers trained, say, to make textiles. Uh, say we need 75 laborers making textiles and then the government takes them, puts them through training and then delivers them in batches often accompanied by government officials to the companies. This is now taking place in Xinjiang and since 2019 uh, the program has been upscaled to cover all of Tibet, the Tibet Autonomous Region. And <clears throat> In 2017, in Xinjiang, the program became much more coercive, militarized everything. In 2019, in Tibet, became more coercive, upscaled, militarized. And in 2020, despite the pandemic, the labor transfers went, kept going even in greater numbers. Uh, 
The labor transfer system is also the system used for coercive cotton picking in Xinjiang, transferring uh, laborers on a seasonal basis for two to three months during the cotton picking season. So what is the purpose and what's really going on? The purpose of the government with coercive labor transfer, which is on top of the vocational internment camp forced labor. So we're looking, the scale of forced labor is really huge because we have two systems going on in parallel and there's virtually no overlap. The goal of the state with the labor transfers, which is scooping up people just from normal society who have typically not been in a camp before, is to combat the influence of traditional culture and religion, promote ethnocultural assimilation and racial homogenization, urbanization, greater integration into the country, and ultimately greater state control over the long term. It's a long term social control and ethnic control strategy. Thank you. Thank you, Adrian. That was really great to get an overview of everything that is going on uh, in the Chinese context. Um, I'd now like to invite Greg Scarlatu to join me up on the screen. Um, Greg is our second speaker and Greg, um, is the executive director of the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea. He is a visiting professor at Hongkong University of Foreign Studies and instructor and coordinator of the Japan and Korea class at the U.S. Depart State Department's Foreign Service Institute. Uh, Greg is vice president of the International Council of Korean Studies. He also holds a master's in law and diplomacy from the Fletcher School at Tufts University and a master of arts and bachelor of arts from Seoul National University's Department of International Relations. He completed the MIT seminar for U.S. national security leaders in 2016 to 2017, and he was awarded the title Citizen of Honor City of Seoul in January 1999. Greg and his work at HRNK is incredibly important. It is the go-to resource for me on all things human rights in North Korea. And so I'm so glad to have him here to address forced labor in the context of North Korea. Thank you, Greg. Well, yeah, thank you very much for the kind introduction. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you, your team at Heritage for uh, <clears throat> working so hard on preparing this event. Um, North Korea, the DPRK, is a uh, TA3 country according to the 2020 U.S. State Department Trafficking in Persons Report. Um, what is the fundamental issue with North Korea? This is a regime that focuses all available resources on its top strategic objective, which is its own survival. Now, on a side note, there's nothing wrong with the political regime striving to survive. However, this is a bad one. According to a February 2014 report by a UN Commission of Inquiry, this is a regime that commits crimes against humanity, against its own citizens, and against citizens of other countries. So, in order to survive, this regime exploits and oppresses its own people at home and abroad. If one looks at North Korea's export profile, and this is basically the source of hard currency that the regime needs uh, to fuel its nuclear and missile program to keep the elites happy through access to luxury goods from the outside world, they export minerals, metallurgical products, manufacturers, including, most importantly, illicit, export, illicit exports of arms, mostly to very hot areas of conflict, Text, textiles, agricultural, and fishery products. 
Now, within this context, um, the North Korean economy doesn't have much to offer. Basically, uh, minerals in North Korea represent a very important resource. So coal, iron ore, copper, other commodities constitute the bulk of North Korea's exports. When the price of these commodities goes up, the regime's answer is more work, more public mobilization campaigns. When the price of these commodities goes down, the regime's answer is more work, more public mobilization campaigns. Coal miners are generally relegated to working under very difficult conditions in coal mines across multiple generations because of their low Songbun status. <clears throat> Songbun is North Korea's loyalty-based uh, system of social classification. Of course, North Korea is also running a vast system of imprisonment. We're not only talking six political prison camps where 120,000 men, women, and children are held pursuant to a system of guilt by association called Yonjaji. We're also talking about re-education through labor camps. We're really talking about uh, tens and hundreds of thousands of people. Many of these facilities were built next to mines because the whole point from the very beginning, somehow similar to the Soviet gulag, was that there is a punitive element uh, that prisoners were being punished for perceived wrongdoing, uh, wrong thinking, and so on and so forth. And there were economic benefits to be extracted from the slave labor, from the prison labor provided by these prisoners. So North Korea's extractive industry, as evidenced in one of our reports, Gulag Incorporated by Kim Kwang Jin, senior North Korean SKP, uh, North Korea's entire extractive industry, but also other areas of North Korea's economy, have been tainted by prison labor, by forced labor, by slave labor. Of course, there is another aspect here. Um, people are another commodity that the regime uh, possesses and never shies away from exploiting them at home and abroad. Um, according to civil society organizations and our own uh, U.S. State Department Human Rights Report on the DPRK, at some point, just about a couple of years ago, there were about 100,000 North Korean workers dispatched to about 40 countries worldwide uh, working as, uh, well, working in fisheries, working as loggers in the Russian Far East, working as construction workers in the Middle East, in the Russian Far East, in China, restaurant workers, women in particular. Um, they work under uh, conditions, working conditions that range from terrible to abysmal. Their salaries are confiscated up to 90%. Um, of course, uh, pursuant to uh, UN Security Council sanctions, many recipient countries of these North Korean overseas workers had to send them back. Uh, it is not clear what the current number is right now, but what is clear is that uh, some major recipients of North Korean labor are trying to bypass the sanctions. One example, Russian statistics showed that nearly 7,000 North Korean citizens arrived in Russia during the first quarter of 2020. And of these 753 registered as workers, 1,975 as students, approximately 3,000 as tourists. We know that something else is 
going on there. Uh, of course, there is another very tragic aspect, and that involves, in particular, North Korean women. One has to remember that North Korea underwent um, went through a great tragedy in the 1990s, a great famine. Uh, since then, a uh, an informal marketization process has taken place in North Korea. The ones who have assumed primary responsibility for the survival of their families have been women. They're the ones who get arrested uh, at the markets for alleged wrongdoing. They're the ones who are subsequently imprisoned and turned into forced laborers at North Korea's detention facilities. It is women primarily who cross the border into China in search of opportunity for themselves and their families. It is them who are arrested and forcibly repatriated to North Korea in direct violation of the 1951 Convention concerning the status of refugees and the 1967 Protocol. In their turn, they're, they're thrown into this uh, mixer of, uh, <clears throat> of forced labor in North Korea. Um, it is uh, more difficult to establish the level, the degree, the depth of uh, regime involvement in the trafficking of North Korean women in China that has been a very serious issue for more than two decades now. And, uh, and certainly uh, with no protection, uh, the North Korean women in China are absolutely helpless. Many of them are forced into these so-called marriages with no paperwork or legal protection. Uh, they're really under very dire circumstances in a very difficult situation. So um, <clears throat> on multiple levels, in various areas, in various industries, um, all over the map, um, trafficking um, run basically by the North Korean regime, by the North Korean authorities is happening. And as pointed out in the, the State Department's 2020 Trafficking Persons Report, not only does North Korea have a very serious trafficking in persons, persons problem, uh, the North Korean uh, government, the North Korean regime is making absolutely no efforts to improve the situation. Um, of course, the time is very short. Uh, we will not be able to come up with any, let's say, solutions, but you know, possibly a, a couple of ideas uh, pressuring the, the DPRK government into joining the uh, Office of the High Commission for Human Rights 2000 Protocol to prevent, suppress, and punish trafficking persons, perhaps making efforts to include a human rights rationale in the UN Security Council sanctions. Yes, workers were sent home, or were supposed to be sent home, but not based on a tip rationale or on a human rights rationale that was entirely a political security military rationale, severing the funds that fueled the regime's nuclear and uh, missile program. Of course, collaboration between uh, our own U.S. Uh, law enforcement and intelligence agencies uh, and uh, intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies in countries that are recipients of, uh, of North Korean workers, for example, in countries where trafficking in persons uh, is run by the North Korean regime, this type of collaboration will be very important moving forward. I'm going to stop here and hopefully we will also have a few questions. Thank you very much.
Thank you so much, Greg, for giving us the overview of the situation in North Korea. And I certainly hope during Q&A that we're definitely able to dig deeper into some of those solutions for how we can really remedy these, these terrible forced labor forms that are, are taking place inside of North Korea. So thank you, Greg. Um, I'm now pleased to invite my dear friend Ziba Marat to join me on the screen. Um, Ziba is a Uyghur advocate. She's the daughter of retired Dr. Gulshan Abbas. Um, she's a first generation immigrant from Xinjiang who came to the United States in 2005. Her advocacy work began out of tragic circumstances when her mom was taken to the concentration camps inside of Xinjiang in 2018. Um, regrettably, after searching for answers for 27 months, it was revealed um, and confirmed by the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs that her mother has been sentenced to 20 years in prison on fabricated charges. Um, I'm so excited that Ziba can join us here today, but also saddened that it's under these circumstances that she is here to speak. Um, but Ziba, we're looking forward to hearing about your mom and hearing about the work that you've done. Um, to advocate on her behalf. Thank you, Ziba. Oh, I think you're on mute. Sorry. Thank you for the introduction and thank you to the Heritage Foundation for the opportunity to speak today as a part of this panel. It feels very strange to be telling my personal story in connection with this topic, but what's happening to the Uyghur people today is nothing less than the massive state-sponsored trafficking of human beings in connection with genocide. My own mother has been swept into this horror and our family has been suffering over the last two years of agonizing over something we never thought would happen. The Chinese regime's labor transfer programs and concentration camps are something that seems unimaginable in this modern age. Since 2017, the Uyghurs have been facing escalating terrible persecution for their religion and ethnic identity. The crisis has escalated and China has faced Few consequences for, the, for its action to abduct innocent people like my mother, Dr. Gulchan Abbas, and Uyghur retired medical doctor. She disappeared in September of 2018, and we had no word until just a few weeks ago. Then we learned that she was given 20 years sentence on false charges in March of 2019. For all this time, our queries to the Chinese regime have gone unanswered. And now we see my mother is in prison as a direct retaliation for my family members' advocacy work in the US. My mother is a peaceful, non-political person. She speaks fluent Chinese and has always lived a life for caring others. And I have no idea where she is or how her delicate health is faring. The hardest part of this lonely situation is seeing that so many people still have no idea what's going on. Even worse, the conversations surrounding China continue with no mention of the names of those who are wrongfully detained. The business deals are pursued while millions of people are being targeted and moved, moved to China, moved to, uh, out of their homes and into direct factory jobs where they manufacture products for global brands and make PPE equipments. Testimony from prisoners are revealed that Chinese prison guards themselves can negotiate war contract. This all feeds into the continued push to provide more slaves. For the past two years, whenever I see video footage of Uyghur camp detainees lined up waiting to be transferred to a different city under the false pretense of creating job to alleviate poverty, 
slogan, I can't help but to look for my mother among those crowds. My heart aches to imagine my 58 years old medical professional mother may be forced to make people's shoes and shirts. As a parent of two-year-old daughter, I can't believe that I had to address Walt Disney, which represent the dream of the children in my Washington Post article that they whitewashed a genocide and choose to film the Mulan in the region despite knowing about the concentration camp where my mom has been languishing. What kind of the world are we living in? We need to pass the Oil Forced Labor Prevention Act and we need to do far more to hold businesses accountable. I should not be worried that my, the shoes and clothes I'm wearing were made by the blood, sweat, and tears of my people and my own mother. On behalf of the Uyghur people and on behalf of myself, a daughter fighting for her mother's freedom, please continue to uphold the value of the human life by shouting, shout, shouting out against this despicable trafficking of human beings. Please save my mother and my fellow Uyghurs before it's too late. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that about your mother and for speaking out on behalf of all of the Uyghur people. I want to invite the panelists to rejoin me on the screen so that we can start taking Q&A from our audience members. Um, this is a reminder to our audience members to please feel free to submit questions into the chat box. We are excited um, to answer them. Adrian, could you also join me on the screen? I'm going to take moderator's prerogative and ask the first question, um, so my question to each of you as you should choose to answer is, what is the single most important step that the US government could take today to counter state-sponsored forced labor? Greg, would you like to start us off? Yes, certainly. We are already taking the issue very seriously, as Ambassador Richmond pointed out. It is undoubtedly a bipartisan issue um, and as I very briefly mentioned in my presentation, of course, there are lots of things we can do on the world stage. There are lots of things we can do at the UN. There are lots of things we can accomplish through bilateral uh, US sanctions, as is the case uh, of the DPRK of North Korea. Um, again, as I mentioned, uh, it will take uh, cooperation with law enforcement and intelligence agencies in countries that are recipients of uh, North Korean forced labor, forced labor, well, basically um, sent there by other government sponsors of trafficking persons. Um, let us not forget that uh, civil society organizations can also play a very important role. Of course, there are civil society organizations that are dedicated to this particular issue. But again, in our world of uh, North Korea CSOs, I think that uh, trafficking in persons could be an even higher profile issue that has been so far. We have been addressing a whole host of terrible, terrible human rights violations and crimes against humanity, from prison camps to the abduction of foreign nationals um, and, and other terrible issues. Uh, but again, I think that CSOs in particular can do much better to elevate the importance of the issue and to focus international attention on the issue. Uh, this is a great opportunity. We have a new incoming administration. It's a great opportunity for a reset, I think, and um, we should all capitalize on this moment and uh, address this, uh, this scourge. Adrian, do you have anything to add in the Xinjiang context? Well, I think, of course, yesterday's step by the U.S. administration to ban uh, cotton and tomatoes not only 
as they are processed in Xinjiang itself or possibly China, but in any third country, according to the Reuters uh, reporting on the matter, um, because a lot of Xinjiang cotton ends up being a uh, an input, uh, essential input in many Asian uh, fashion-making countries, garment-making producers. Uh, this is a has been this was a crucial, really crucial step. Um, the next step would be the Weaker Forced Labor Act, uh, because it goes beyond it. Uh, the Weaker Forced Labor Act also monitors the the transfers of Uyghur workers uh, to other parts of China and what's going on there. Although I'm not sure that its provisions are quite strong enough to to strongly tackle the content ramifications of that. I think, you know, oftentimes with these policies, they're developed years ago, you know, on evidence, on past evidence, and then it's a fast moving target. So there's more work to be done, I think, to systematically counter Uyghur uh, forced labor and possibly Tibetan forced labor as it circulates around the country. Um, and also, I think, more to be done in terms of uh, products and possibly other materials like polysilicon for solar panels, uh, where forced labor was being uh, detected and how that then ends up also being exported in other countries. At the same time, I think we are now also shifting to the enforcement side of such a ban, as well as working with uh, other allies. The United States needs to start working more with allies uh, on an appropriate de decoupling. I'm not advocating a complete de decoupling, but the sort of a, a appropriate measures to to counter anything that could have uh, anything to do with forced labor. I think there's a lot more to be done on the diplomatic side. Great. I have a question um, from an audience member specifically for Adrian. It says, many have called for Americans to cease buying products made in China as a form of boycotting the country's trafficking and human rights violations. On a practical level, if large countries like the U.S. crack down on buying Chinese-made products, what happens to those laborers? Would they be further punished? Would they be permitted to return to their normal lives or jobs? What would be the consequences? Well, for the Uyghurs, we already have uh, claims that Uyghur workers are being sent back from eastern China back to Xinjiang because the Chinese company in question was being challenged and doesn't want to have any problems. Um, for the Uyghur workers, there will certainly be ramifications. There's the possibility that their income will be impacted negatively. Although for most of them, I would think not because most of them also uh, really work for domestic uh, consumption, you know, for China's domestic market uh, particularly. Uh, so I think it would be the higher end ones, I think, who might be more affected. And also, if Uyghurs end up uh, being sent back to Xinjiang, their loss of income is likely not dramatic because they can still earn an income in Xinjiang. But I think, uh, <laughs> well, I think it's a matter of principle, you know, even if some Uyghurs lose income. Um, I think actually many Uyghurs would rather uh, either suffer more and have the international community take public steps against China's oppression of them as a people, uh, even if this has some economic ramifications, then, then to just, uh, then, then the world community silently supporting a system of injustice. I mean, those are really the alternatives we're talking about. Uh, and uh, you specifically mentioned like a boycott of all Chinese products. Um, well, I mean, that's a really broad thing and not, you know, many, many products in China are not made with forced labor. And you could say, well, is it about, I would avoid a, a significant reduction on our over-reliance on China 
for a number of reasons, for national security reasons, for economic diversity reasons, for allowing other countries to prosper as well, not just China. Um, but I would not advocate that we cut off Chinese products uh, simply because of forced labor, uh, uh, just point blank. I think that's inappropriate. We need to just differentiate. Thank you, Adrian. Uh, we have a question from Albert Hong. He works for Radio Free Asia, and this question is directed to Greg. Um, Albert is asking about the relationship between the COVID-19 closures of North Korean borders and the uh, continued high demand for North Korean women um, and the impact that that has. So he, the way that he phrases it is the number of North Korean women who have been supplied to China is expected to significantly decrease while North Korea's border blockade is expected to be prolonged due to COVID. So naturally the ransom price of North Korean women may rise and there's a possibility that the trafficking of human brokers seeking to make money will be even more rampant. What do you think about this relationship between COVID-19 and the trafficking of North Koreans and specifically North Korean women? We do not know enough. I don't think we do have clear answers. What we know for sure is that draconian measures have been put in place. We know, for example, that the overwhelming majority of foreign NGO humanitarian workers have been pulled out. We know, for example, that uh, UN agencies uh, only have just a couple of international workers on the ground. We know that foreign embassies, uh, those who still have uh, diplomats on the ground, simply have a skeleton staff, staff there or just uh, local staff. So these restrictions are extraordinarily tough. North Korea continues to claim that there are no COVID cases. So far to date, we have seen no statistical data, no evidence of the extent of COVID. Now, of course, we could speculate regarding uh, demand and, and what's happening with trafficking in China. But unfortunately, the, uh, the fact of the matter is that we do not know for sure. And this continues to be a, a topic of great interest to us, the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea, and uh, other organizations asked to investigate the North Korean human rights situation. Thank you, Greg. Ziba, I know I promised I wouldn't put you on the spot, but we have a question for you from our audience members. Um, they say, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and Ziba for sharing your tragic personal story. How can we better educate U.S. consumers of goods produced with forced labor? And do we believe, slash, do we have evidence that this education will cause consumers to stop buying these products? Um, I am not an expert on the forced labor matter, but from my personal experience, educating people and telling them the story that they you heard about the Uyghur personal testimonies, um, I think would move them to stop buying things that's made with forced labor and we have a lot of testimony a lot of like uh, personal experience that connect um the things that made in made with forced labor coming out of china so do your part um educate others tell the stories share the stories thank you thank you ziba and I'm just gonna ask one final question. I know I said the last one was the last one, but this is really the last one. This is for Adrian. Um, how do we differentiate slave labor made products without banning all products from China? You sort of alluded to this a little bit, but if you could go into a little more detail, that would be great. Anything, any cotton product from China with cotton because Xinjiang makes 
uh, in 2020, Xinjiang produced 87% of Chinese cotton. So if you have any product with any cotton from China, you have a high chance that there is an involvement with Xinjiang and forced labor. Um, when it comes to, then you got tomato products. Xinjiang produces a, a lot of tomatoes. Now, of course, these are also the two exact products that have been banned uh, in yesterday's ban, but of course the enforcing and et cetera. So we have an ongoing consumer awareness need uh, in that, even in the United States. Another big one is textiles and garments, but of course China produces a lot of garments, not necessarily all with you know, forced labor from Xinjiang. So it does become more complicated. So there you need to pay more attention to media reports. So certain companies are implicated. Uh, we have uh, Muji, a Japanese company who quite liberally advertised uh, cotton from Xinjiang. Uh, we have Esquel, uh, which is a large uh, uh, garment uh, maker and supplier uh, based in Hong Kong that has uh, significant dealings in Xinjiang. Uh, some of these bigger Chinese companies and suppliers have their own large uh, factories in Xinjiang, and some of them even own or have leased a lot of land even to grow their own cotton. And so um, this is a matter of paying attention to media reports, of educating yourself. There's the Coalition to End Forced Uyghur Labor. They have their own website. Over 300 entities are associated with them now. Uh, it's it's going to be a moving target, and it's 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 in the media. So um, I think websites like the, also the Uyghur Human Rights Project, websites like those, the campaign for Uyghurs, uh, which is run by um, Ziba Murad's sister, Rushan Abbas, campaign for Uyghurs, CFU. Um, these entities create awareness and post, and of course my Twitter account uh, has a, <laughs> will have a fairly regular stream of information on the latest uh, in news and everything. Uh, so there is there are ways to inform yourself. Unfortunately, they're a little scattered. I think there's a real need uh, for this to become more systematic. And I would very much agree that there's, there's much to be done on the awareness side. So thank you for asking. Mm, that was great. Thank you so much to our panelists for really shedding light on a an aspect of human trafficking that I think gets not nearly as much attention as it deserves. Um, so thank you for taking the time out to to participate. Um, as Adrian mentioned, all of their Twitter handles are actually below. You can see it there. Um, please follow all of them if you're wanting to keep up to date on human trafficking developments, as well as on many different human rights violations that are taking place um, all across the globe, but especially in North Korea and in China. Thank you also to our audience members for participating today in our first in a series of two events in uh, on fighting human trafficking. We should have another program later this month, so keep your eyes peeled for that event announcement. But in the meantime, thank you to everyone for joining us and um, for your care and for your attention towards an issue that really deserves and merits a lot more work, a lot more solutions, and a lot more progress. Hopefully we'll see that in 2021. Thank you, everyone.